Puck University. I'm your host, Tim Williams, and yes, this show is going to keep going throughout the offseason. This week, I'm joined again by Chris Lynch of Inside Hockey for some thoughts on the Frozen Four weekend, Denver's championship season, and what's ahead in what looks to be a busy offseason for college hockey. But first, Chris, what was the atmosphere like in Chicago for that final? Oh, man, it was awesome. Uh, the United Center is a phenomenal hockey arena. It is an outstanding place to have it. I got to wander a little bit. My dad went with me for this whole thing. Um, he, he didn't work. He was just there as a fan, but he went uh, along with me, and we got to see and experience uh, college hockey fandom at its best, and it was really cool to watch. So... Uh, the atmosphere at the United Center was outstanding. It was the first ever Frozen Four they held in Chicago, and everyone agreed that it was a smashing success. And we'd love to do it there again. And I think next year it'll be in St. Paul, which I am sure always does a fabulous job with it. But uh, the sooner they can get it back over to the United Center, the sooner uh, we're all going to be uh, a lot happier that we can go back to Chicago. It's a great time of year to visit Chicago right at the beginning of springtime. That's for sure. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. Uh, I got to go to a White Sox game beforehand. The Cubs had not yet started their season, so no, I couldn't get to see Ridley Field with that 2016 World Series banner flown. Oh, well, you know, minor concerns. But I did get to go see a White Sox game that Saturday morning before the championship game. And it is lovely out there. So highly recommend, if you've never been, go to Chicago the second you can. And I I agree with your sentiment on wanting to bring the Frozen Four back to Chicago. I like when the Frozen Four goes to an area that doesn't necessarily get to see a lot of college hockey and helps spread the game that way as opposed to a place that I I agree, I'm sure St. Paul is going to be a fantastic place to have the Frozen Four. There's few fewer places, there are very few places in the U.S. that are more hockey-crazed than that part of Minnesota, so that will be a lot of fun as well. But it's nice to see college hockey kind of bro- grow everything by going to a place like Chicago, and I'm glad to hear it was such a success. Yeah, it just would have been a little bit nicer had the hosting school that played in the tournament, uh, it would have been nicer had they put on a better performance. But they had a very tough task in front of them. So there's not a whole lot of shame in the host school Notre Dame's performance. Yeah, Denver was really dominant in that game, winning 6-1. to one. It wasn't particularly close, and, and Denver looked every bit like a team that would end up being crowned national champions. They were fantastic as they have been throughout the entire NCAA tournament in just dispatching Notre Dame. It was it was a nice run that the Fighting Irish got on. They they earned their way to the United Center in many ways, but yeah, Denver just absolutely dismantled them in that game. Oh yeah, um, I remember watching it, and this is right after a very emotional and very close game in the. The first day of the uh, of the slate, which we'll talk about in a little bit, between Harvard and Duluth, but uh, just watching that game, I've never seen a college hockey team that so completely dominated a game in the way Denver did. And what surprised me the most is that Notre Dame, in that game, 
got only 17 shots on goal. They only got one. They got one goal by Tanner Gillette on a power play that got tipped right in front of the net. But man, they got completely dominated. And I was thinking, is this really the same team that I saw come back against Minnesota in the regional, down two to nothing, and come back to win that game and be a very good Golden Gophers? And is this the same team that I watched upset UMass Mole? in overtime for what, in a lot of ways, felt like a trip to the Songa Center instead of uh, up in Manchester, New Hampshire. Am I really seeing the same team? It was almost shocking to me. So my question was, was Notre Dame just that bad and played that scared against Denver, or was Denver just that dominant? And truthfully, after a while of thinking about it, I still don't know the answer to that question. I, I do agree that Denver played like a dominant team, but I still think that Notre Dame, a very young team that only graduated three seniors and only one of them was a major contributor, in the, um, a, a major giant contributor on that team, um, I still feel like Notre Dame played a little bit scared in that game. This is not against Jeff Jackson, a phenomenal coach but I still think the players let the pressure get to them, and they didn't play up to their standards. I really feel that way. I'd, I'd add on to that by saying there there seemed to be a little bit of a sense of just happy to be there with Notre Dame, and they should have been happy to be there. They earned their way to that spot, and it was an upset that they got there. They were the four seed in their region, but they, they kind of played like a team that had achieved their goal by the time they already got to the building, and that's always a dangerous position to be in, especially against a seasoned team like Denver. Yeah, Cal Peterson did not play that way, though. I mean, he had some saves that I think everyone agreed that he, he would have wanted to have back, but Cal Peterson played as well as one guy possibly can uh, with that much pressure that he faced. And he let in six goals, but he faced 42 shots, and any other night, a 38-save performance against Denver is a tremendous effort and an outstanding game. But I maintain that I think Cal Peterson, in total, was really the best goaltender in hockey East this season, and really was the best, uh, one of the best goaltenders in college. I think he'll be back next. I, if I'm not mistaken, he'll be back next year. I think he should contend for the Richter Award in the Big Ten, a conference that uh, has been geared for offensive teams. I think Notre Dame should immediately be the favorite to win the Big Ten championship next year, simply down to they have a real stalwart defense that Ohio State and Penn State didn't show that they had. Yeah, I I would agree with that. I think they come into that conference with a style of play that's really suited to playing well in that conference. And as you said earlier, they're only losing three players off their team. They're returning most of their team, which that gives them all sorts of experience. And as we saw in this tournament, some positive experience to grow on as well as they come into this Big Ten conference where they'll be a lot more comfortable. They won't have to travel as much. Yeah, that Notre Dame team is going to be scary next year. Simply, they'll have their entire top line of Ogilvy, Evans, and York, which I think Notre Dame is very happy that uh, that he did not sign with Boston 
and leave a la Jacob Forsbach and Carlson and Charlie McAvoy, though I think the Bruins might be a little bit feel a little differently about that, but that's neither here nor there for uh, for the soon to be senior. Um, but I was not impressed with Notre Dame's performance. Just I thought they played scared. I thought they played over your heads. I think your description of them as being happy to be there is a hundred percent correct. What's even more surprising is the fact that a Jeff Jackson coach team did that. I don't think Jackson can be blamed for that being the outcome. I just think that's what happens when you have a young team that has not been there before. The other game on Thursday was fantastic, however. Minnesota, Duluth, and Harvard, which we had coming in as it it had high billing, it had high expectations. We expected a lot of this game between two teams that on paper were very evenly matched, and they didn't disappoint. Both teams scored in the first period very close to each other. The game stayed 1-1 until the last minute of regulation when Alex Iafalo put one through for Minnesota Duluth and sent the Bulldogs onto the final. But what a game that was, and a great display for college hockey on the biggest possible stage. I agree. Um, <clears throat> I said on the podcast before that game, I really thought that this was the most evenly matched game of the tournament, and I think I was proven correct that that was the most evenly matched game we had in I love the way the goaltenders played. Uh, Manson and Miska stared each other down and uh, made incredible save after excellent save. So I thought it was an excellently played game. The player I was most impressed by, uh, for Harvard's sake, was actually Luke Esposito because he he was all over the place. Had a lot. He didn't record a point in that game, but he was all over the ice very hard and had an excellent showing for him and almost tied the game in overtime. The reason why I say, in part, it was an emotional game because my dad is a Harvard alum and my dad was there in the stands watching this game as it unfolds and thinking it's going to go to overtime and still annoyed because he, he still thinks that first goal was kind of a soft goal that was generated. I disagree with him, but he's entitled to his own opinions. He played hockey in high school. He knows the sport. But he's watching this, and he sees the goal going with 26 seconds left. And there's still time. And Harvard was literal centimeters away from tying the game up. In the last blink of an eye, they pulled, they pulled Manson from goal, win the faceoff, drive it, force an icing against Duluth to get a face-off in the offensive end, and they generate five shots or something like that. Miska makes a bunch of saves, and Luke Esposito has an opening in the top right corner of the, of the net, and he hits the corner of the crossbar and the post, and it brings out, and Duluth clears it to neutralize, and Harvard fled Maybe their best regular season, well, certainly their best regular season in over 20 years, was so painfully close to at least overtime of the national championship semifinal round. And that close to the national championship game 
I had I had an opportunity to go into the Harvard locker room afterwards for asking questions, and I said, no, I'm I'm not going into that locker room because this is got this has got to be especially for a senior laden team in Harvard. This has got to be maybe the most painful moments or day of these kids' hockey playing lives. I'm not going to go in and uh, talk to him right now. I felt so bad for those kids who worked so hard and were so close. And this isn't a point where I feel bad they were robbed by a bad call or by an official's mistake or anything like that. I didn't, and they weren't. They just came up. They put out every single thing they had on the ice, and Duluth barely edged them. You've got to feel for Harvard in that instance. Oh, absolutely. And especially I felt for Merrick Madsen, who had a fantastic yeah. game in goal for the Crimson. But if you just saw the highlights of that game, and this is one of the cruel things, and playoff hockey is nothing but cruel. It's cruel on yeah. the fans, and it's cruel on the players. And fortunately and unfortunately, that's really what keeps us coming back year after year. But the game he had, he was fantastic in all three periods, stopping an onslaught from Duluth. He had 36 saves in all. But both of the two goals allowed weren't flattering on camera. And that's all no. I'll say about him because that's an angle. That's a camera angle. You don't know what the goalie's seeing, what he's going through at that time. And with the game he had, if he hadn't been that good, Minnesota Duluth would have pulled away a lot earlier. Oh, yeah. Uh, he kept Harvard in that game for the whole stretch of it. And I still think that uh, and he, the only reason why Harvard was in it late was because of Madsen's play. And you could say that for a lot of the season. Without Merrick Madsen having the season he had, Harvard doesn't sniff the Frozen Four. They barely even sniff the regional final, I think. So um, you feel bad for him, but the two guys who came out in the press conference afterwards, um, on the podium, Ted Donato was there, and Alex Kerfoot and Devin Tringale conducted themselves with such incredible respect and honor in defeat that I have nothing but the highest levels of respect for those two gentlemen. So um, I commend them for handling it, but they were emotional afterwards. And Kerfoot... Especially, I, I thought he played a very good game as well. Um, he had a look on Niska late in that final mad scramble to try and tie the game. Again, Esposito had a, had a beautiful look that went off the corner of the crossbar, like the corner of the crossbar on the post on the right side of the net from the shooter's perspective. So, and they were centimeters, not inches, minuscule centimeters away from tying up that game. And it is it was the closest game, I think, of the tournament until we get the championship game, but we'll get there. And uh, it was an exciting matchup for college hockey. I'm just a little bit disappointed that uh, my dad couldn't watch his alma mater win a national championship. Yeah, that, that, that's a little unfortunate for, for the um, fan experience. Like I said, playoff hockey can be cruel, and those of us still watching the NHL playoffs know that pretty well as well. Like it's it's not a when when it ends painfully, it's not a fun experience. But that's part of what keeps us coming back, and um, part of what makes hockey so unique. 
it's so quick. It's so sudden. This wasn't sudden death, but in the last minute of overtime and then, or in the last minute of the third period, and then Harvard comes back and finds iron. It sounded like they found it twice. I know they hit the corner there, but it sounded like they hit a post earlier in that scramble as well. Yeah, they did. That's how close you can come. Yeah, they did. They hit, they hit, they drew iron twice. It's about as brutal as it could ever get for one team that to be that close to tying it up twice in one possession. Again, you can do nothing except steal for these kids. They did everything they could. They followed their coach's instructions to a T, and they were right on the doorstep of at least forcing overtime in the national championship game, and they just missed it. In no world is anything other than very painful. Well, I guess to be fair, Duluth felt very similarly in only two days afterwards. So, you know, that's a thing that happened. Oh, absolutely. The final was, it it did not disappoint either between Denver and Duluth teams who had seen each other several times to that point and all and NCHC matchup and proving that they really were the strongest conference this year. And it's always a debate in college hockey who the strongest conference is. But at the end of the year, I think it was pretty, pretty obvious. Oh, yeah. The NCHC was outstanding. I mean, the Hockey East was great all season. We'll always be biased in favor of the Hockey East because of our affiliations with our schools. Um, I'm sure that there are many who will be biased and will argue that the Big Ten is on the way, and it is, but uh, and I didn't realize how dominant the NCHC was before I took a further look at it. This was the second consecutive NCHC team to win a championship with North Dakota winning it last year, and also winning it convincingly over an ECAC team. I do there was a good amount of buildup, and it was all from a Western audience. And I think for the fan ex- experience of that game, realistically, I think it was better for the sport that it was Duluth and Denver in that final game. One reason, Harvard, and this is a fair criticism to say about them, Harvard has never traveled well for hockey. They might, may actually travel, they might be the worst school traveling-wise in the sport, Duluth and Denver traveled beautifully, and there were just under 20,000 people in the United Center. It wasn't a full, complete sellout, but it was close to being a complete sellout for that building. And as you said, the last time we spoke on this podcast, the United Center, even by professional arena standards, it's a big one. You can tell it was built in the heyday of Michael Jordan and those bulls. Oh, yeah. Uh, the building was gigantic, and the Blackhawks have taken up the mantle of being the Chicago standard bearer. Or maybe I shouldn't say that for this season where they are right now. Anywho, uh, <laughs> the uh, building was giant. I actually got to walk out on the ice after the game got done. I'll share the full details of the story afterwards, but I looked up and thought, man, this place is giant. But um, it was great for college hockey that we had in that game, and I did have one question about uh, about Denver going into that game. Because I'm talking to everybody in the media room underneath, and I'm saying, 
you know, Tanner Gillette didn't look impressive to me in the game against Notre Dame. And admittedly, a big part of that is he didn't have to. His teammates did all the work for him by just completely destroying Notre Dame on the on the blue line. Headlines by uh, Hobie Baker Award winner Will Butcher. And I know that you're – I don't know what exactly you think of this, but I'm absolutely inclined to agree that Will Butcher was the correct choice for Hobie Baker Award winner this year. The best player, the best defenseman, my dad – watched him as a fan. I watched him as a media member, and quite simply, he was the best player on the ice for huge stretches of it. Not uh, uh, really not anyone else on that team. He was the best player on the best team all season. So I know you love Aston Reese, and I know you sort of also have a soft spot for Vecchioni, but being realistic, uh, I think they got it right with the Hobie Baker Award winner. I'm not. I wasn't sure initially that they got it right with the Richter Award winner, because I wasn't impressed with what Gillette saw. But before we talk about that, what do you think of the Hobie Award winner? Well, I I prefaced everything the last time by saying when you get to the Hobie hat trick, unless it's one of those very rare exceptional years where one person really towers above college hockey, there is no wrong answer with the Hobie Baker. Once you get to three players, that you could have made the case that there were other players who were equally deserving as those three. I personally think that the tiebreaker was team performance, but you have to break the tie. You have to do it somehow. And if, if, you, if you're like me and you think it was pretty dead even coming in, well, it's the best team. They're the ones that were still playing, and neither of the other two made it to, to Chicago. And it's kind of hard to make a case against Butcher, and that's one thing that I think that ended up breaking the tie in the end. And it's hard for me to say anyone was robbed. I certainly wouldn't say that. I don't know if I don't know if Will Butcher would have had my vote, but then again, there's a reason I don't have a vote. <laughs> uh, well, Butcher had mine after, and this is after a lot of just watching his tape and watching him play Notre Dame. I mean, he he looked outstanding. He skated well, and he's an undersized defense. He's not a big guy. He walks into the press conference, and I mean, he's got a great beard, but he, he walks in, and you look at him and think, this is Will Butcher? This is the supposed best college hockey player in the country? He's not a very physically imposing player. But he hits hard, he skates hard, he passes well, he does every single thing you need him to do. And I was impressed with uh, the way he played. I was not that impressed with the way Tanner Gillette played the first couple of games in the tournament because, and I wrote this in my preview piece for Inside Hockey, I had concerns about the way Gillette would play in big games with pressure and a ton of shots coming his way because his first game against Michigan Tech in the tournament, he only faced 18 shots and made 16 saves. His second game, he only faced 26 shots and made 24 saves. His third game against Notre Dame, he faced 17 shots and made 16 saves. He allowed goals in every single game, and he made an average of 18.67 saves per game. 
that's absolutely no big game pressure that he had faced. I personally thought Miska should have won the award for Richter Award winner. I was made a believer out of Gillette in the championship game, but before then, I was skeptical. What do you think of the uh, award for Richter? Well, it's funny. I think it's a regular season award, and that's a big part of it, but it seemed like it went to the goalie who was on the best team of anyone that was still playing. Mixa, or Miska had a great season. He belonged in the conversation. I thought he was going to win it. I thought there were some other fantastic goalies. Michael Bitzer, in a lot of years, would have won this award running away. And yeah, although the Atlantic wasn't that strong a conference, Charles Williams from, from um, Canisius was fantastic as well. And I thought they would have done better in the, in the running than they did. And I, I was really surprised by the result. And I, I couldn't... I, and that's not to say that Tanner Gillette's anything but a fantastic goalie. It, Denver would not have made it this far if he weren't. Oh, yeah. I absolutely agree that uh, I I have since been made a believer in uh, in Gillette. But at the time, I was very skeptical. And I it isn't to say I doubted uh, that Denver could win. I, I thought that Denver would be the favorite. But my only question of them for the tournament was ultimately how is Gillette going to handle pressure because he faced absolutely none leading up to it. I went back and looked over his other regular season stats and I thought it's very good. I mean, he had a goals allowed average of under two. I think you're right about Mitzer. Other years, he would have won that award going away. Granted, if they had this award before 2014, they would have had this going away. But uh, you're right about them using team performance as the ultimate tiebreaker. And whether or not that's fair or not is up for debate. At some level, it really is. At some level, for a goalie at least, it also kind of is. But my point remains with Gillette. I wasn't impressed with him because he didn't have to do anything with how dominant his blue line unit was in front of him. Just they completely controlled every single game they were in, and Gillette didn't face any pressure or any real test before the title game. That changed in a heartbeat, though. Yeah, it, it certainly wasn't that way in the final. He took a lot of pressure in that final. Um, I would say just to re, to cap off that point on the Richter Award that I agree with you that at sometimes it makes perfect sense for the team success to be a tiebreaker, especially with a player like Will Butcher winning the Hobie Baker. Well, he's a defenseman. He's about as team-oriented as anyone on on the ice is going to be. So if Denver's the best team, that adds to his resume. I'm not sure you can say the same of a goaltender that had such a great blue line in front of him. But in the final, in the national championship game, it was really Tanner Gillette's time to shine. Oh, yeah. Uh, he looks great. And uh, I had a whole lot of uh, people in front of me saying that uh, – <laughs> I had a whole lot of people in front of me saying that they had uh, a lot of faith that Denver would win kind of easily. I looked at them with a crooked eyebrow thinking they were crazy because Duluth was a better team than what Notre Dame had presented, and Duluth – was the unit that was best equipped a ton of pressure on 
And even when Denver went up 3-0, and we'll talk about the scoring output by Luka, but uh, when they went up, I still thought we we still got a tight game the whole way. Um, so it was uh, it was an interesting game the whole way through between uh, between Duluth and Denver. I really thought that we had a classic after the first seven eight minutes when uh, Duluth had faced a hailstorm from the Pioneers and didn't budge. They gave up the first I think eight or nine shots of the game. And Miska stood firm, and a freshman, a freshman facing the consensus best team in the country, did not flinch in the national championship game in the United Center. It was a fantastic first period. It was an amazing display of hockey. It's the best scoreless period you'll see in college hockey. 23 shots in all and no goals. And a lot of those shots on both sides of the ice weren't just pouring them in on net. Those were some good shots from some tough places. Yeah, I'll fully admit, though, I was still a bit annoyed watching Duluth play, and I mean annoyed because I always want close, tight, championship-caliber games to be, well, close, tight, championship-caliber games. And I felt that in the first five, six, seven minutes of the game, Duluth was making the same mistakes that Notre Dame made of playing too cautiously and too defensively. I, I saw them backing up. They had one forward going in for a board battle against Denver to get them in the corner of their offensive end. And every one of the other skaters, the two of the forwards and the defensemen were back up at the blue line or the red line getting ready for a sudden charge. And I know that Denver's a fast team, but I watched them and I thought, guys, there's a way to beat a dominant team. It's to beat them, beat them to the punch early and not give them a chance to dominate. This isn't the way to do that. So I watched them thinking, I really hope that this goes up to the task of staring down because this game plan isn't the way to do it. And fortunately for them, this goes up to the task. And the first period ended even. And I think they, dad know, my dad noted this as well. They must have changed their strategy because they did uh, start getting a lot more pressure on Gillette as the first period wound down. Denver still won the first period shot-wise, but it was a lot closer at the end of it. I think it was 13 to 10, something along that line in shots at the end of the first period. Yeah, it was 13 to 10, and then Minnesota went from – losing the first period in terms of shots to taking 13 in the second period. But by the end of that period, they found themselves down 3-1 because Jared Lucas Savages was on his game. He scored three goals in the period, two in almost right after each other. Yeah, that was, that was incredible. You watch that and you're thinking, I mean, who? Like not not Borgstrom. Uh, I mean, Lucas Savage is a very good player. Is on that top line, but like not the supremely talented center who was drafted in like, the first round this year. No, someone else. Okay. Uh, it was it was awesome watching it and an awesome performance from him. And the questions for him afterwards. There's one in particular. Um, I don't remember who asked it, but uh, there was someone. Else. So uh, talk about the points that your head coach made about scoring three goals in the championship game to win. And 
everyone was in stitches afterwards because his head coach, Jim Montgomery, in the 93, I think you know the game I'm talking about, right? Montgomery scored three goals in the national championship game off assists from Paul Correa to win the game 5-4 for Maine after they were trailing by two in the third period. So Montgomery had a natural hat trick in the third period, and Luke Sevich had a natural hat trick being coached by Montgomery in this year's national championship game. And, in fact, that was Montgomery's was the last Frozen Four hat trick before Lucas Stevenson this year. So, you know, little connections here and there. And by the end of that period, it really looked like Denver was in full control of that game. Although Duluth had put plenty of shots on net and they were still fighting hard in that second period, by the end of it, down 3-1, it just seemed like Denver was going to really tighten things up and with their defense a two goal lead coming into the third period seemed pretty tough but that was before minnesota duluth would have a third period where they took 17 shots denver was only able to muster three yeah uh denver got outworked the thing that the thing about that one is denver lost one of its best defensemen in Tariq Hammond, who went out with a broken ankle um, early on in the period. And, they, and Denver had to go 16 minutes and 50 seconds against the second-best NCHC team without one of their best defensemen. Their five-defenseman unit was going the entire end of the game. And the fact that they only gave up one goal in that back stretch of it is a massive, massive credit to Tanner Gillette for making 16 saves in that period. And the one goal was on a rebound shot that Gillette made the initial save on, and it bounces to um, to big six foot five Riley Topsy right on the doorstep, who put it home and cut the lead down to one with five minutes left to go. So. Um, the Hammond injury was really the turning point of that game, and they held on for dear life at the end of it. It reminded me a lot of Deleuze win over Harvard just two days before, that at the end of the game it was completely frantic. And it was it, this time it was the Bulldogs that were trying to fire it in as quickly as they could from any angle they could get. And... It was the last five minutes of that game were NCAA hockey at its finest. It's one team with a fantastic defense and a, a decorated goalie who's trying to hold off another team making a final desperate surge. And it was it, it, it was as good as hockey gets. Yeah, it was awesome. It was exactly what you hope happens in a national championship game. So um, I, everyone who was in attendance was, was was respectful of the game that went on afterwards. The Duluth fans knew they they did everything they could to try and win that hockey game, and it just you know it, it didn't happen. But it was a tremendous display of some of the best hockey you'll see. So um, it was a great game. The most outstanding player went to Jared Lukasiewicz, as you know a hat-trick in the national championship game that's sort of hard to unseat. So I, they got it right. It was a tremendous tournament and capped off by one of the better – I would have to 
really think about this before uh, agreeing and finalizing this, but it had to have been one of the best national championship games that's ever been played in the NCAA, ever. Yeah, it's got to be up there. It's it was close. It didn't have any, it didn't have anything off-putting in the game. It was just it was great hockey all the way throughout. And uh, I would I would hesitate about saying there was nothing off-putting. The Hammond injury was gruesome. It wasn't dirty. It was not a dirty play. Um, but it was against Logan O'Connor. I think it was who uh, went in and hit him. But it was a gruesome thing that stopped. And Denver looked down after that. I am hopeful that uh, when people write the story of that game, as the way I did, that they remember how Hammond's departure from that game on a stretcher, they, they, they almost immediately after Will Butcher went out to, uh, to see him, Butcher almost immediately called for the stretcher to come out. And it was a scary moment. Like everybody was a bit concerned, and there was one thing to be annoyed about is that Hammond was down in the corner of the Duluth offensive zone for a good five to ten seconds before the official blew his whistle to stop the play, and Hammond, and this is while the puck was still in the Duluth offensive zone, and uh, it was an effective power play, and he was close to Hammond getting hit with a flying puck, but other than that, uh, that really unfortunate injury and the Frankly, brutal and unnecessary. Uh, the, the frankly missed timing on it. Other than that, it was a tremendous game, and it was beautifully run, beautifully played. It was everything you could hope for. And yeah, the best, and the best moments out of all of it was after the game, um, in the immediate aftermath. Hammond came back out on the ice with help, being helped out onto the ice by his trainers and the. Denver fans gave him a roaring applause, as rightfully they should have, because I'm sure that Hammond looked at the officials and said, "I'm staying for the I'm staying for the end of this game. I'm staying around for uh, for my guys." And everybody for Denver was happy that they won it and uh, that he could be a part of the picture. And Montgomery added in the press conference afterwards that he's probably wearing that he's almost certainly going to end up wearing a letter for them next season. And it's probably going to be to see on his on his sweater. So a tremendous game and an outstanding effort from Hammond to just you know skate on the ice on a broken ankle after uh, after everything was all said and done to celebrate with his teammates. And you were right to say that was a brutal injury that he got caught in a bad place. And it wasn't it wasn't a dirty hit in any way, shape, or form. It was just the way hockey can be sometimes. You get caught in the wrong place. You get something that turns the wrong way when someone hits you, and that that can be devastating sometimes. It's yeah. There's sometimes there's nothing you can do. Yeah, it was tough, but uh, they did it, and it worked out, and Denver won. And they were the best team. And uh, it actually took me a little bit to accept that, as an East Coast guy, it took me a little bit to accept that, you know, there might be really, really good college hockey in somewhere that's not the East Coast. It took me a little bit to accept that and to just admit that, you know, there's really good college hockey in other parts of the country. And that's a good thing that uh, the sport is developing in such in such a way. Well, that's... That's a good point as well. And I don't know if I would say I was in 
exactly the same boat, but you don't get to see that many of the Western teams when you live back on the East Coast. You get to see Hockey yeah. East, you get to see the ECAC, you get to see Harvard and Extra Time at the Bean Pot, and you're lucky to get that occasional straggler West Coast game, that or that Western game. There's not really West Coast college hockey, but the games from the NCHC or even the WCHA, um, those are those are hard to find sometimes, even on the cable dial here back east. So I think a lot of yeah. people that watch hockey in our neck of the woods didn't really see Denver coming because we didn't have a chance to see Denver coming. Yeah, and uh, if we're trying to be really national and being honest about it, we really should have because I went back and took a look at their season and just I, they were the best college hockey team all year. All year, they were the best team. And it took them getting upset in the NCHC frozen faceoff for them to not win the conference tournament. They won the regular season. Duluth won the tournament. And it took them losing to um, what North, North Dakota, was it? Who, uh, I'm drawing a blank as to who exactly this was, but Denver did not win the frozen faceoff. They actually lost in the semifinal of that tournament in the NCHC, but they were they were all season the best hockey team in the country. And it, I wish I had paid attention to that a little bit more, but there's only so much you can do when you're so concerned about, you know, driving up to Vermont and Maine to go cover BU play. Hey, everybody. Tim Williams here to tell you about Podcast Lab. We're a group of writers, most of us sports writers like myself, who are taking our material to the world of podcasting. There's the Sunshine Boys podcast, where Jim Williams hosts longtime Tampa sports writers Joe Henderson and Ira Kaufman as they take you through the week in sports. Joe also joins Tom Jackson and moderator Jim Williams for the Politically Incorrect podcast, giving you a taste of the political pulse of Florida. Puck University is our college hockey podcast, giving you a glimpse into the world of college hockey. Conference Call with Jim Williams breaks down the big events of the college sports calendar from the people who make it happen. Speaking of inside looks, get an inside look on golf, golf courses, and all things related to fairways and greens on Ground Under Repair. There's also my sports podcast, The Pickup Game with Tim Williams, giving you weekly takes on sports from a Bucks fan who loves Boston. All this with more to come on the Podcast Lab Network, writers experimenting in podcasting. Yeah, those winter drives in northern New England can be a bit daunting, and there's there's always that weekend that someone has to go to, and then inevitably down from Orono, and there will be more snow somewhere between between the Boston area and Orono than you could imagine there being on that route. Interestingly enough, the Orono Drive was not the most difficult one I made. The Burlington Drive was by far the most difficult one. In part, it was a rare winter weekend when it did not snow in Orono or in the state of Maine. I'm not going to ask how that happened. I'm just going to be thankful that God was merciful and that it did not happen at that point. And uh, the Burlington one was a lot more difficult. In part, that was my first weekend covering for inside hockey or writing for them at all. And I just, on a whim, said, yeah, I can make it up to Burlington. 
yeah, I have to drive four and a half hours, and I didn't think this through, but oh well, now I'm in, so I may as well try to make it work. Yeah, that's then the drive to Burlington's no picnic either. There's, it, it, it's a destination for a lot of people here in in the east that a lot of people want to go to see Burlington. Not so much necessarily during the winter sports months, though. You know, I've got family up there, so it worked, and it is a lovely place to uh, to go. And I love Gutterson Fieldhouse. I only wish that uh, the UVM team could actually play on the road, but. That's neither here nor there. We're now in the off season where every team will retool. I think I'm curious as to who will improve and by how much in uh, in the time that everyone has off. I know that David Quinn, the head coach of the Terriers, had a had an interview with WTBU in which he said, and I quote, "Dark down here now, and with the town coming in next year, anything less than a national championship is a failure." this program that's that's a big gauntlet to lay down especially with the talent that is leaving boston university but one thing that you can say about david quinn there are very few people in this country in any sport who can recruit college players like dave quinn oh god quinn is quinn is outstanding and i got to and getting to watch him just coach and in press conferences he is fairly under control in press conferences. He is, he is, if ever he is upset with a call, uh, I, I remember one point in particular. They're playing Notre Dame in the second, in the, uh, uh, in the penultimate game of the regular season at Aganis. And if they win each of these two games, they win the regular season for the Hockey East outright. And uh, EU made a late push and they're down like two goals on a minute left. There's a whistle, but the puck is not under the Calpitas and the goaltender. It's about a foot away from him, but the the ref doesn't see it. And we asked him about it in the press conference afterwards, and he said, yeah, I'm glad you pointed that out. It was very quick whistles, weren't they? It wasn't – I know he was furious, but he didn't say it in a way that made him sound furious. He said it in a very snarky, sarcastic, yeah, that was a thing that happened in this game. And you can tell that I'm very unhappy about it, but I'm David Quinn with my perfect hair after I just got done coaching a stressful hockey game. So I'm going to go ahead and say that it was stressful, and that's a thing that just happened. So, uh, God, I love David Quinn for uh, having that sort of quick wit in the middle of uh, big, important hockey games. It just makes the job a lot more fun. Well, and he's part of the new group of college hockey coaches that's going to have to take that personality mantle from a couple of guys who were leaving college hockey this year that have chosen to leave throughout the off season that are, well, in, in our neck of the woods, there's New Hampshire longtime coach Dick Umilly, who is retiring after being their coach for what feels like ever. He's and, retiring after this season? I thought that Umilly was going to stay around for one more year. Yeah, and this is just, I think this is. I think you're right. This is going to be his last year. And then in yeah. Michigan, Red Berenson hung it up for, for good just last week. Right. That's right. The, he's been there forever as well. 1984 was his first year as Michigan's head coach. So he, Joe. How many How many national championships did he win? Michigan has got the most ever, and he has to 
he had to have overseen a few of those national championships. They've not won any since 98, but he's been there for a ton of their championships. If, yeah, I, if I'm not mistaken, right? Yeah, he's been there for some of their championships, certainly. I'm looking up now just to find out exactly which ones. Mm-hmm. And, um, when he... um, we, a, a word about Emily. We got to, I was in Lowell for the last game of that series between New Hampshire and the Riverhawks when Lowell scored six goals in the first period of that game and just overwhelmed Tyler Kelleher and the Wildcats and just completely dominated the team that many actually said was among the most talented college hockey teams that have, that have been through during New Hampshire. So it, it was unfortunate that they weren't consistent enough in performance. But um, and we, there were people who asked him about what he was going to do after the season wrapped up in terms of whether he would coach again or retire. And he said no comment at this time, but I think you could see that he is—he's running out of gas in his uh, his supply of energy, and I—I I honestly feel a bit bad for Emily because he—he's got to be the best college hockey coach who's never won a championship. And in all those years in Durham and all those teams, he went to the national championship game in '99 in Anaheim and lost by the skin of his teeth in overtime to Maine. And I think one other time in a one or a two and lost that one as well. He's been to four throws of fours and has never won a national championship. Like you just got a feel for a guy who's been around that long and can't say he's won a championship. Absolutely. To to add to the Red Berenson point, eleven frozen fours and two national championships in nineteen ninety six and nineteen ninety eight for Michigan. You know, Michigan is pretty good at hockey, or they were good at hockey at some point. <laughs> yeah, they, um, they're they one of the, as I would say, blue bloods of college hockey. And that's a, that's a phrase that's kind of come up quite a bit lately, as there's always something going on with those schools. And out Michigan's yeah. way, there's the big realignment that happened with the Big Ten, that I think all of college hockey is still adjusting to the fact that the Big Ten exists. It's There's no longer a fight against the Big Ten, but we're still in the period of adapting to what the landscape is like now that they're, they're part of it. I wouldn't be shocked if... Uh, I never got to ask this, but I realized later on that Denver, one of the teams that was affected by the move, because they left the old CCHA, and formed the NCHC as one of the founding members of that new conference. They got to play the agitator of all of this madness in the form of Penn State because their moving up to Division One hockey is really the cause of how we got to this point. And not only did Denver beat them, they beat them down 6-1 to one or something like that. And I just, I, I wonder, I never got to ask them, but I wonder if, the Denver players thought about that or if the Denver program and coaching setup had thought about, uh, hey, remember Penn State and how annoying they are and causing us to realign and doing all this sort of nonsense? Yeah, let's beat them. That would be great. That that would be loads of fun to show how the Big Ten is is, uh, drawing on the fruits of their, uh, their labor by losing to us. No. I don't know how much that was the case, but 
I feel like it was had to be have been at least a little part of it. Quite possibly, and certainly among college hockey fans, you hear Penn State given that that narrative of it's their fault that the Big Ten exists. Now, to be completely clear on this, the Big Ten had a long-standing agreement out there that once six of their member schools, any six, were playing hockey, they were going to have a hockey conference. So Penn State is the catalyst for that, but it is not in and of itself Penn State's fault that the Big Ten exists and you do hear it quite a bit I certainly I know that that there are teams out there like Michigan Tech who really hate Penn State and blame them for the realignment that helped knock their program down another peg after you know they they've kind of fallen on hard times since their former glory and now they're stuck in a in a depleted conference because the Big Ten kind of took away the strength that the WCHA was starting to to gather. Yeah, it's uh, well, I don't think starting to gather the WCHA with I think they had one year in '05 or '06 when every single oh no I'm thinking the CCHA in '05 when every single uh, member of the Frozen Four was uh, was from the CCHA. But the WCHA had some real pull and had some real power behind it, but stuff happens, I guess. And uh, I understand why Tech is – it is completely understandable why Michigan Tech and other programs don't really like Penn State. And I understand that uh, it wasn't really Penn State's uh, fault that the Big Ten wanted to play hockey when they had six member schools who were playing it. But it is very easy – to uh, cast them as the scapegoat for all of this because, and it's easier to grasp that one school did it, even though it's not necessarily the most fair thing, but life doesn't always work on what's actually fair. It works on what works for a story. And the fact that Penn State was the team that caused the switch to happen, I think it's, I think it's an easier narrative, and I think it makes a bit more sense that uh, that everyone else would join in. And I think Minnesota State and Duluth also were not too thrilled about that switch happening. Oh, absolutely. There are plenty of schools that are, that are upset about it, and most of them direct their ire, or at least the fans do, toward Penn State. And part of it's their origin, too, that Penn State is a program, let's face it, that exists because – a very rich person wrote a very large check and one day they didn't have a program and the next day they did. And they have a beautiful building to show for it and they've kind of they've they've established themselves, but they've done it on the fly. And they've done it on the fly uh, with, okay. you know, when treated like an underdog, it's hard not to joke. Yeah, it just goes to show what all the money in the world can get you. Ah, uh, capitalism. It can get you a regional final appearance and get you destroyed by Denver in your first trip to the NCAA tournament as a Division One hockey program. That's the way I. Uh, that's the way I think many NCHC fans should joke about it. That uh, that uh, and many Western uh, teams should take a look at it as well. That they should say, Ah, uh, yes, you people get your reward and your just punishment of getting obliterated by the best team in this part of the world. Who, by the way. This NCHC thing, well, really the schools in the NCHC should thank Penn State for causing that because that made a super conference that was really on par with and has surpassed the hockey as being the best uh, college hockey program in the country, I think. 
Well, it produces the best teams. They've had the last two national champions, and it's such a deep conference that neither of those teams could claim that they also won their conference that year. Um, North Dakota got upset in the NCHC frozen face-off in, before their title run as well. So there's that going forward as well. And they really have built themselves yeah. into an identity. And I think that realignment will take somewhat of a large role this offseason because Notre Dame is moving into that Big Ten. But another thing that I think is going to really throw a wrench into the college hockey offseason is added a level of uncertainty we did not expect is that the Olympic Games are no longer going to involve NHL players, and that's going to have a profound effect on both the U.S. team and on college hockey. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Uh Will, there are going to be some NHL stars. Like Ovechkin has said that he will play for his national team regardless. So, Caps fans, I'm sorry, but there's going to be a big dip next February. For about a month, your team is not going to do as well. So, just, just get ready for that, Caps fans. But um, for everyone else, for the U.S. team, I'm not sure if they if it's safe to say that they will suffer any bit of a letdown because of how the teams have played in World Juniors. Because, of course, the U.S. won World Juniors this year, but it's a big jump to go from playing junior hockey to Olympic hockey. Um, so, yeah, I'm not sure what to make out of that shift exactly, out of how many college hockey players will get to be a big part of it, what the uh, outcomes will be. I think that I think Team Canada will be fine for picking up players from their junior leagues. I think the the Team USA one is really the one that will meddle with the college hockey season the most. And it's unfortunate that uh, uh, that for college hockey fans, at least, because there will be a different product next season on the ice, and it's not the fault of the sport itself; it's the fault of the Olympics. Well, it's unfortunate, but it's also a great opportunity for college hockey because you're going to have some players, and maybe not that many of them because of the way things work, but you're going to have some players who actually play in the Olympics for Team USA and shortly thereafter getting ready to play in the NCAA tournament for their respective hockey teams for their schools, and that might drive interest to a degree in college hockey as, after all, college hockey is an integral part of the story behind the U.S.'s greatest Olympic hockey achievement by far, the Miracle on Ice. I'll agree, I'll agree with that. Uh, that's, that's a completely fair point to bring up. I mean, I'm inclined to point out that the goalie and game winner of that game came from one particular school on Tom Avenue, which is I'm maybe the one that's actually in Boston. But, you know... Uh, <laughs> Uh, yeah, college hockey is an integral part of how that came about, and yet I still feel like in some hockey circles it's not that widely beloved or that, I mean, in most it is, in some there is still the sense of, yeah, it's just college kids, not quite the same as what, uh, as what the pros could do, not, not the AHL or not the, uh, not the more esteemed professional leagues or, or the junior leagues that exist up in Canada. But, uh, yeah, it, 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 you're right about that, that it will be a good opportunity for them to showcase their skills and for the members of Team USA to put on a show and say, hey, if you liked what you saw here, we've got months of this stuff going on 
down in uh, in 60 college campuses across the United States that you, the paying customer at home, can watch. And maybe it gets other people at other schools interested in it because, uh, like it or not, there's still other ways for the sport to grow. There's what hundreds. There's what hundreds of uh, college campuses throughout the country, and there's only. I don't know, there's only 60 teams in the sport. I mean, there's there's a lot of room to grow. Uh, there's a lot of schools that could develop more more teams. That's Puck University for this week. Congratulations to Denver, to Will Butcher, and to Tanner Gillette on the Pioneers' historic season. I'll be back throughout the offseason with some off-the-wall topics while going over the offseason news. Thanks again to my guest this week, Chris Lynch of Inside Hockey. Check out his Twitter page at CCLynchWall. This has been Puck University. I'm your host, Tim Williams. Subscribe to us on iTunes, Stitcher, and Blog Talk Radio. And as always, keep your head up and your hits clean. Mm-hmm.